0: Only
1: redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the face of motherhood. This is Amy. And today we are talking to the co-hosts of one of my favorite podcasts. It's called Fluster Clucks. Lynn Lyons and Robin Hudson are with us today. Anxiety expert Lynn Lyons has been a therapist for over 30 years. She's trained hundreds of teachers, school nurses, counselors, and parents about managing anxiety. At the beginning of the pandemic, when their parenting retreats went on hiatus, Lynn and her sister-in-law, Robin Hudson, started the podcast Fluster Clucks to help families with anxiety. Two years later, they're still talking about anxiety and worry in kids and in parents and the crazy things the mental health field gets wrong about anxiety. Welcome, Lynn and Robin. Thank you. Hi, thanks for having us. Great to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you today. This is one of these great privileges of hosting this podcast is getting to sit down with true experts and being like, okay, so (laughs) let me figure out this thing. Like these guys, they're going to solve all our problems today. Yeah. Let's start with this question. What does the mental health field get wrong about anxiety?
2: Oh, geez. Well, uh, a lot. (laughs) But let me say this, like it's all with good intention. And the problem with anxiety is that the things that you do that feel right, like the things and the things that work in the moment are the things we get wrong. And so a lot of times the mental health field says, okay, so we need to help kids. That's what we want. We need to help parents. That's what we want. So let's just calm everybody down. So everybody needs to calm down. Everybody needs to relax. And then it goes in, okay, so how do we do that? Well, if we can just avoid this, if we can just make sure that we don't trigger our children, if we can just keep them safe, all of that language moves into the anxiety world and unfortunately gets in the way of what we really need to do, which is to teach kids how to manage their emotions, how to tolerate when something doesn't go their way, how to be okay with their big feelings. Not everybody, of course, but the mental health field and schools too. Oh gosh, schools really focus on accommodating and avoiding and calming down. And it just takes us in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm, That accommodation
3: thing. As the moderator of our Facebook groups, I can tell you that we constantly get listeners join the groups and say, nothing's made sense until I found Lynn, read her book, because the therapist that they would see would only enable the anxiety and make it stronger. So, you know, Lynn's message, and she's not the only one with it, but the approach that Lynn has is always like, oh, well, this is now finally working and making sense.
1: And this accommodation for anxiety is something that parents, we can do it in schools, the people in these anxious kids' lives with the absolute best of intentions. Of course. I saw it recently in my own life. A couple of weeks ago, I got COVID again and some errands and things still needed to happen in our lives. So I got in the car with my kid who has some anxiety and like, okay, I'm going to go to this place. You're going to go in the post office, the pharmacy, you're going to go in and you're going to ask for this and you're going to get it and you're going to bring it back out wanted to go somewhere for lunch. You go in and order, I'll wait in the car. This was so hard for this kid. This kid needed a lot of coaching on how to go into the restaurant and order. Came back out, forgot something, had to go back in. Mom, I can't. Why are you coming back in? They're not going to think it. Yes, they are. They're going to think this. Anyway, this was all only suddenly presented to me because I absolutely 100% Mm -hmm. couldn't go. I'm staying in the car. I have a mask on. So it had to be this way. And that's when I really saw how I with the best of intentions, have been over accommodating
2: the social anxiety that this kid might have. Right. And even in the moment when you're trying to help, you're giving a lot of reassurance, right? So when you say coaching, it's really the goal of the anxiety disorder, remember, and even if it's not in the level of disorder, the goal is to create certainty and comfort. Okay. So your child is going into the post office and you're saying, okay, so here's how you're going to do it. Let me give you the instructions step by step. Right? Because, and the anxiety is hanging out there saying like, okay, I need a little more. Okay, wait a second. Somebody might think something. Mm -hmm. Somebody might think, okay, what are we going to do about that? (laughs) And then you want to say like, nobody's going to be thinking anything. Yeah. Yeah, they are, because people think and people judge, right? So the goal is not, as parents, as adults, we want to step in and say, like, you'll be fine. Here's more information. Let me go over this again. Yes. Let me reassure you that everything will go fine. And that's called doing the disorder. But of course, that's what everybody does. And remember the high school student client you had where you sent him into the bagel restaurant or the bagel cafe and order a pizza, right? Because he's like, I can't tolerate people judging me. So I'm like, all right, let's see how that goes. So we set up a little assignment for him to go into a restaurant, order something that they will not have. (laughs) So then the person behind the counter says like, dude, this is a bagel place. We don't have pizza. And the goal is on purpose to step in with volition to step in so that you can get the experience of managing it. That is. Fascinating. Yeah. So with social anxiety, we want to say to kids, people don't judge. People aren't thinking things. Well, how do you know? And we judge all the time. You don't have control over people judging. So the goal is to tolerate the reality that people judge all the time. Not say, people don't judge. Yeah. I see. Tolerate judgment. Tolerate judgment. Tolerate uncertainty.
1: And isn't that almost impossible for tweens and teens to do? Because they are certain that everybody's looking at them, thinking about them all the time. So we're asking them to say like, well, maybe. <laughs> right? Yeah, they're right.
2: They're right. I mean, you know, like what we say, like when you go to school, nobody's judging you. Have you hung out with eighth graders? Right. So, so, right. I mean, they're judging all the time. And it's the same with adults, right? I had an adult client who wouldn't go into the gym unless she was with a friend because people might think something about her. Mm -hmm. And I go, well, yeah, they're going to think something. You have beautiful hair. Why did she wear those shoes? Who knows what they're going to think? But it's all about allowing for the stuff to come in rather than preventing the stuff from coming in. And that's where we get it wrong. That's where we get it wrong I see all the time. Right. Because
1: in this moment, I was giving myself a real like, I was getting this wrong, but now I'm getting it right. <laughs> but I was still saying <laughs> yeah. like, but here's step by step instructions, So you can't screw it up and experience a moment of discomfort, I promise. And that's not the goal.
2: Where you were getting it right was that you were saying you got to go in. Right that's where you were getting it right. Right. And then you wanted to make sure that when he was stepping into this situation that felt uncertain, it, it's not like we give kids no information. If your kid had never gone into a restaurant before, you wouldn't say like, well, see what happens. But with anxious kids, it's just we want to give more and more and more and more. I wanted to ask
1: both of you about the studies that have come out recently about the pandemic and what is being presented as a absolute like hockey stick increase in anxiety and depression in teens and tweens and that this is something we need to super freak out about as parents. What do you think is happening? Is it as dire as it seems? What are your thoughts on that?
2: It's dire for sure. Here's what people miss. It was dire before the pandemic. And so we had a real problem providing services to kids before the pandemic. And then the pandemic happened, and so we had this uptick for sure in kids needing things. And then it became really, really apparent that we didn't have the services to provide. So it was this combination of an uptick in kids' anxiety and depression and then a real revelation that we are not capable of providing what kids need and what parents need. And so, that has really snowballed, unfortunately. Yeah. But are the numbers of anxiety and depression up? For sure. Do I tend to be more optimistic about what kids are capable of? Absolutely. I always say, like, who wants a pessimistic therapist, right? If somebody comes to see you, you'd be like, yeah, you're right. This is terrible. So, I really believe in the resiliency of kids. I think the thing we really need to pay attention to is that the adult's language is the freaking out language. The adults are freaking out and the kids are absolutely absorbing all of the freak outness. And that's so hard because there's
1: so much to freak out about right now in this life. Something just happened recently. It wasn't even like larger world. It was a personal situation involving one of my kids. I had to really go to bat for one of my kids and I was so triggered. I was so angry after spending a couple hours on hold with customer service, that kind of thing, that my kid wasn't going to get to do something that had been long planned and registered for and like through no fault of their realm. Now it's not happening. And I knew I had to calm down for like two days before I even told the kid because I was going to present them with my own. I was not going to model perhaps the correct reaction.
3: Good for you. That's it, right? Yeah. You're managing your emotional response. You're recognizing how you can protect your child from a really big emotional response and you're waiting until you can communicate it. And then sometimes, of course, we talk about this all the time. Sometimes you are going to freak out in front of them. You have an opportunity then to talk to them about your freak out and how you're working on trying to manage your anger about specific things. Or, you know, I really got really frustrated and I went a little crazy and I'm sorry about that. I shouldn't really do that. You know, you just move on because we're going to do it. And those can be useful moments, I suppose, when you're sort of modeling.
2: Yeah. Well, the research, there's a lot of research about what kids see and what they don't see in front of parents. And of course, we don't want kids to see rage and violence and a parent being totally out of control, because that is scary and damaging. But what the research also shows is that if a child is able to observe a parent moving through something, and not moving through it perfectly, even moving through it in a messy way, and the parent is able to talk about it. This is one of the things that they say with parents having fights, with parents having arguments, you know, regular couples having arguments, is that kids do better when they see their parents resolving it, when they see their parents figuring it out. Because we're supposed to model for them the whole process And if you have a child that says, I've never seen my parent angry, then I wonder have you seen them sad? Have you seen them grieving? Have you seen them silly? Have you seen them nervous? Have you seen them disappointed? And again, not off the charts. We don't want kids to witness parents being out of control, but we want kids to be able to see how it's done because that's what they're learning from us. And that goes back to the story about your child
3: and helping them understand how to tolerate judgment from others, there'll be a moment in your day where you'll say, I had to go and talk to somebody for work and discovered I had this massive piece of broccoli in my teeth afterwards. And, oh, that was uncomfortable for a moment. But then I said, you know what? Who cares? You're modeling the ability to tolerate judgment for them and you're reinforcing that's how you do it in a healthy way. And you're admitting that it's something that you have to try to do and you're telling them that you achieved it. Therefore, they can also handle learning that skill and accomplishing it too.
1: I love that. I'm talking to Lynn Lyons and Robin Hudson, the co-hosts of the Fluster Clucks podcast, and we'll be right back. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses. First two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers.
0: fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to Lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E,
1: Lumen.me, and use the code Fresh at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen,
0: for sponsoring this episode.
1: So Lynn, you've talked on your own podcast about how anxiety is generational and... uh It's like a
2: river running through us. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. The reason it's generational is because we're social beings. So when I talk to parents about this, I make a very clear distinction about blame and responsibility. We're not saying, Oh, if your child is anxious, I'm blaming you, but it really is helpful for parents to say, here are the patterns we know get passed down. And if somebody says to me, Well, you know, I don't know why my child's anxious or I don't know how this anxiety showed up. If I were to say, yeah, we don't know. We're just, gosh, it's such a mystery. I don't find that to be a very helpful response. But if I can say, let's look at what the risk factors are. Let's look at what patterns are passed down, probably from your parents. Because when I'm sitting with a family, because I work with families, if I say to a kid, who's the anxious parent? The kids do not say like, gosh, that is a really tough question. They don't say that. They're like, well, it's that one. I mean, they know. And then if I say, well, what about the grandparents? They know. And so, it really is just about recognizing the reality of our social connection, that that's where families, you know, your kid speaks your language because you speak the language. Your kid celebrates Christmas this way or celebrates Hanukkah this way because that's how your family does it. So, it's really important to just normalize that parents have a role to play. And I really want to empower parents by saying, yeah, this thing is modeled, this thing is taught. This thing is unconsciously just given to families down the line. How do we interrupt it? And I don't want it to be about blame. It's not about blame, but it's really easy for these patterns to just get passed down. And there can be a resistance to acknowledging
1: that the anxiety exists, (laughs) right? Like (laughs) speaking hypothetically, it would be like, no, I'm fine. Yes. Thinking just for example. Right. Like you just... If you weren't so annoying all the time, mom, Yeah, I wouldn't blow up at you. Just don't do anything to annoy me and we'll be fine here. And when you're starting from that, not that irritability is the only manifestation of anxiety, it's not, but it can fool people. Like I used to think that I had an anxious kid who was also an irritable kid. And it took a mental health professional to explain to me, same, same thing. Right? It's just the manifestation. But what journey do you go on with? I think every family has anxiety within to some extent, but some it's really affecting their functioning, right? And I think often the anxious person is like, don't call me anxious, I'll blow up. How do you move somebody towards acceptance, especially a kid?
2: Yeah. So it's the first thing is normalizing it. And so a lot of people have a Conception, a preconception about anxiety. A lot of them have a preconception about therapy. A lot of them think that anxiety means I can't do anything or anxiety means I'm a little nervous jervis, right? So you've got, sometimes you've got kids that are sort of see themselves as kind of out in the world and they're strong and they're performing and they're getting all A's and they're captain of the debate team. And they say, well, I can't be anxious because look at how I'm functioning. And so it's really important to recognize how anxiety shows up. And one of the ways that you see, and when kids really push back against it, a lot of it has to do with rigidity. A lot of it has to do with, I need to do things a certain way. And when you tell me I'm anxious, when you tell me I'm not doing it, for one, I take that as a criticism. I need to be perfect. I need to get this done. I'm going to handle it my own way. And so this you're anxious becomes this threat to the very thing that they're trying to keep on track. So that's where you get a lot of pushback. It's basically just a lot of misunderstanding.
3: It's the language, you know, in the course of doing the podcast with Lynn, it's just a mom myself, people misunderstand what anxiety is. If they think it's really just related to worry then all of the people who try and manage their discomfort with uncertainty by controlling outcomes don't understand that anxiety is them too. Like anxiety is a much bigger umbrella term. And when families are speaking about it accurately, like how are you managing your uncomfortable feelings? How are you managing uncertainty then you realize like, well, some people respond by that by wanting everything a certain way. And a highly functioning adult or teenager is maybe really good at controlling those outcomes. And they don't necessarily see it as anxiety because, but of course, that requires a ton of rigidity. So I think that it's really about a family understanding it, and then talking about it more accurately for a teenager to start accepting the different labels or Things up to work on. You're so right. I mean,
1: the stereotype of anxiety is somebody who's not functioning, right? Like somebody who's so worried about social interaction that they're agoraphobic, or they're so right, their school refusal. And I'm not. I don't mean to belittle those things because those are real. That a super high functioning, I like certainty around a lot of things is actually anxiety.
2: Yeah, because perfectionism is so applauded in our culture right? And so if you've got somebody who's super high-functioning, and you say, oh, you're anxious. They're like, how could I be anxious when I'm at the top of my class? Or how can I be anxious when I'm in this profession? That's a very stressful profession. I remember I said to this one little kid, he was probably about seven. I said, do you think you're a perfectionist? And he goes, not yet. (laughs) (laughs) Poor little muffin. I was like, oh, dude. Yeah. So when it's interesting, because when I'm talking to families, Oftentimes, what a very interesting dynamic is, is that one parent will come in and say, my kid is really anxious. And then the other parent will come in and be like, no, he's not. And then I'll say, well, which one of you is anxious? And that parent who... Says No, he's not is the one that says, well, I'm not anxious. And then the whole family is like, oh, please. Right. So they don't recognize the rigidity. They don't recognize the perfectionism. They don't recognize the control. Like Robin just said that phrase controlling outcomes, because remember, anxiety wants certainty and People will go to great lengths to get that. Sometimes they'll get it by being agoraphobic and hiding in their house and never talking to people. But if they're out in the world, they'll try and get that certainty by controlling outcomes. Think
3: of a successful surgeon who must control every outcome and be very rigid in the way that they perform their job. And they are rewarded and acclaimed for being such in keeping people safe. When you have those skills and that muscle of controlling outcomes, how do you manage it at home? How do you know how to stop managing outcomes at home versus what you bring to the table? So the irony is anxiety can actually really reward adults in what they're doing. And we have to have an awareness about that so that we are not then trying to control the outcomes of our kids and stunting their ability to make mistakes and fail and learn from that too.
2: Well, which by the way, they don't believe us anyway. Like when we try and say to kids like, it's okay for you to fail. It's okay for you to make mistakes. They're like, uh, no, it's not. And they're exactly right. Our whole system is set up to reward perfectionism. You know, when I go to the award ceremony when my kids were in high school and there was an award ceremony, and at the end of the school year, like academics, and they would bring up the top 10 kids in the class and they'd all be standing on the stage. I'm like, Oh, I know you. Oh, I know you. Right. I mean, there are all these kids that I know that just were in agony trying to pull this off. But the culture that people would stand up, they'd give them a two minute standing ovation and I'm watching and I know who they are and I know what they went through to get there and it wasn't healthy. So the tricky part is when we say to kids like, it's okay to fail. It's okay to make mistakes. They're like, oh no, it isn't. No, it's not because this is what we reward and this is what we don't reward. Yeah. They're big cultural messages
3: to fight against as parents. To give our kids that breathing room, we have to really be loud, as loud as the messages they're getting from their schools and teachers and clubs and coaches. We have to give them that space. What do we offer
1: for that kid to say like, okay, you're right. I'm anxious. I try to nail everything down. I need help with this. What are we offering them that's better than the National Honor Society and the accolades and getting to stand up on the stage? What are they getting in return for putting some of that aside?
2: What they're getting in return is not all the things that are the result of this life, right? And all the things that we don't like to talk about, all the things that the physical symptoms, the immense price that people pay, for anxiety and stress and perfectionism and doing everything at this high level. I mean, people will say to me all the time, why are our kids so anxious? Oh gosh, we've got to figure it out. I'm like, it's not that hard people to figure out because you can't have the pedal to the metal all the time. So the thing about kids when we're talking about perfectionism, the way you will lose them is if, and they would have lost you, Amy, they would have lost me, they would have lost Robin. If they said, be average, mediocre is fabulous. I was like, oh no, no, I'm not doing that. What we have to teach these kids is how to differentiate between when it's okay to coast and when you have to put the pedal to the metal. Because kids that are perfectionistic and the message that we're giving them is that you have to do everything well all the time. You make one screw up, you get one bad grade, you make one mistake and you're done, right? It's such an all or nothing thing. And I equate going to high school right now is like, Being on the balance beam in the Olympics, right? They make one bobble and everybody's like, Oh, it's done. Right. That's how it is. So we have to say to them, you have to figure out where you can coast. So my son is in seventh grade at the time. He's 23 right now. So he's in seventh grade and I go to the. Gym in the morning or wherever I was going to do. And there's other moms there, right? Cause you're, you're out there hanging out with the moms and the moms are like, it's a Saturday. And the moms are like, Oh God. All right. We'll see you later. I got to go do the castle thing. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, have fun with the castle thing. And so then I go to the grocery store and I run into somebody else and I'm like, Oh, how you doing? They're like, Oh God. After this, I got to go to the craft store because of the castle project. <laughs> I go. The castle project? I'm thinking, am I missing something? So then it happens again, like the third time, like the next day. Oh, my son, I said, Why don't you have Elliot come over to play? He goes, Oh, he can't come over. He's working on his castle project. I go, okay, so pump the brakes here, fella. What's the castle project? And he goes, Oh, there's this seventh grade thing. We all have to make a castle. And I go, Oh, okay. When's it due? Like next week. I go, hmm, okay, so I haven't heard anything about the castle project. He goes, Yeah, yeah, I got it. I got it. I got it. Okay, all right, all right, okay, you got it. And so then days go by and somebody else brings up the castle project. Like some other mother says like, oh God, I hate the castle project. And I'm thinking, I'm a terrible mom. I know nothing about the castle project. So I say to my son again, like, do you need any help with the castle project? Like, do you need me to drive you to the craft store or whatever? Like, let's not wait till the last minute and tell me like there's this castle project. And he goes, mom, I told you, I got it. I got it. So I go, okay, okay happens again. Somebody else brings up the freaking castle project. We're in the car. I say, okay, I'm trying not to be intrusive here, but what's the deal with the castle project? Because I'm not seeing any castling. There is no (laughs) castling happening. And he says, okay, I'm going to go over this one more time with you. Okay. Last time. I have an A plus in social studies. I have done the math. I can do a mediocre castle. I can get a B-minus on my castle and maintain my A+. I can do a mediocre B-minus castle in the time they're going to give me at school and with all the crappy materials they're going to give me at school. I am going to do a B-minus castle because I think castles are dumb, by the way. I'm in seventh grade. Why are they making us make a castle? And I'm still going to get an A-plus in social studies. So I told you I got it. I got it. My work here is done. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I'm a great mom. Yeah. I was just like, woohoo. Yeah. But that's learning how to coast. That's learning how to coast. He didn't need to do the castle project and I didn't need to go to the craft store, which by the way, is like, when I go to hell, it will just be walking around in the craft store. So it was just... But so an anxious
3: student would insist on an A plus and not have the skill to differentiate when they could coast and didn't need the A+. Oh, my gosh. That is very
1: eye-opening to me. Yeah. All right. We should take a break. And when we come back, I want to talk about younger kids specifically.
0: Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is...
1: Okay, so I'm back. I'm talking to Lynn Lyons and Robin Hudson, who are the co-hosts of the podcast Fluster Clucks, which explores anxiety within families. Let's talk about younger kids and how the last two years of being stuck at home with pretty worried parents who are not always doing such a great job of hiding it. Let's talk about those younger kids and how we can sort of usher them back out into the sunshine, so to speak.
2: Yeah, so little kids, we know if we look at the impact of the pandemic on little kids, it was less impactful, actually, because they didn't have such a huge disruption in their lives. But interestingly, when we look at the group of people, several groups of people that were really impacted in it, one group was moms of young kids. So the kids, like they didn't Realize that they weren't going places because they didn't. They're fine, right. and a lot of them actually liked having their parents home so much. And maybe they weren't going to daycare or they weren't going to nursery school, and they were like, "Yeah, this is great. My parents are home all the time." The moms really took a hit because they were trying to manage all this. And I don't know about you, but I said to Robin on a regular basis, "Oh my God, thank God I don't have the two and the four-year-old." Yeah, right. I mean, during all of that, so so exhausting, exhausting without the pandemic. So the thing we want to pay attention to with little kids at this point is just making sure, one is that we are giving them opportunities to be back out in the world because they did miss out on that. And one of the things that I'm seeing with younger families, and I think a lot of it has to do too, is that a lot of younger kids aren't vaccinated yet. So there's still a lot of concern about that, is how do we make sure that we're giving them the opportunity to catch up a little bit? I was interestingly talking to a second grade teacher the other day, and she was saying, So, this little group of her second graders this year, they missed kindergarten, they missed first grade. So, she's got these second graders. And I said, What are you noticing? And she said, well, there are two things, three things she said that are really interesting. One is that like I'll be giving a lesson and they just like stand up and start walking around. (laughs) They have no idea. They're just (laughs) supposed to sit. She'll be like, where are you going? Oh, I'm hanging up my sweatshirt. I'm talking. You got to sit down. They don't get that. The other thing she said is that they don't know how to hold it going to the bathroom. They haven't learned how to hold it. Wow. Because that's a skill you learn. Like I have to pee, but I have to wait until I get to the potty. They don't know how to do that. And they want to eat all the time. (laughs) She said she's had to send letters home to parents saying like, look, we give them breakfast. They have a little snack. They have lunch. They're not starving because kids are coming home and saying like, I'm so hungry at school. They just want to nosh all the time. So that was, I thought that was really interesting, just sort of the social training. It's going to be incumbent upon us with little kids To make sure that we are giving them opportunities to tolerate uncertainty, to to tolerate, cause they didn't, they weren't really aware of the big uncertainty of the pandemic. They're learning uncertainty in little ways. They're learning disappointment. They're learning navigating the world in little ways. So we've got to make sure we're giving them those opportunities. And, you know, in different parts of the country, it's harder than in other parts, but make sure parents that you're Not getting caught in this really rigid, really predictable, really we're at home all the time life, because that's going to catch up with them for sure. Well, Lynn, I think you should also speak to the fact that the treatment of
3: anxiety is the same as the prevention of anxiety. And when you have younger children, there are three skills that Lynn focuses on in her work, and we talk about it all the time on the podcast too flexibility problem solving, and autonomy. And when you're a parent of a younger child, you have the opportunity, even if you're to prevent issues around anxiety, by thinking of ways that you're talking about and living as a family, nurturing those skills. So why don't you break those down, Lynn?
2: Yeah. So thank you, Robin. That's why you're here because Robin's (laughs) 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 we need to talk about this. Yeah. Don't you want to tell the castle story? (laughs) Yes, I do. I'm so glad you set that up. (laughs) I do love to tell the castle story. Yeah, so flexibility. Well, and that's such a good thing to remember because when they were at home, when everybody was at home, how do you create independence? How do you create autonomy? How do you create problem solving when they're right there? Because they weren't away from mommy and daddy. They weren't away from the sort of structured lives. They were in this routine because a routine actually helped people survive. So you want to look for opportunities. And one of the homework assignments that I give to families all the time is I want you to take a little inventory of the things that you're doing for your child that they can do for him or herself. And I want you to pull back on that a little bit. That was a really common homework assignment before the pandemic. It's even more important now. Because parents do things for kids, not because kids can't do them, but because it's faster if we do them. These little things like pouring the milk. We had this amazing teacher that my kids had, Mary. We call her Montessori Mary. We loved Mary. And she said, if your kids want to pour their own milk in their three, don't give them the gallon jug. Don't give them the half gallon jug get a little creamer, put the milk in it, and they pick it up and they pour it on their cereal. Think of ways that you can begin to let them figure things out rather than you stepping in so quickly. We've got to lengthen the leash and the leash was really, really short for a few years. So how do you let them venture forth a little bit? And we know they've been measuring actually, they've been literally measuring the Distance that parents let their small children go from them. And in the last 10 or 15 years, it's gotten shorter and shorter and shorter. So that's a thing to pay attention to. You don't take your three year old completely off the leash. And I don't mean leash them literally, but we want to lengthen the leash. You want to give them the opportunity to try things, to make messes, right? Be flexible with the things that they do. They don't have to wear the same socks. The warning signs I see is if I see a five-year-old and the parent is still picking out the clothes, if I see a nine-year-old where the parent is picking out the clothes, I really want parents to look in these little ways that are so important. How do you let your child navigate through things with love and support and encouragement, but let them be messy. And I use the term messy in a very sort of literal and figurative sense. And the parent who is tolerating letting
3: their kids go to school messy may have an issue with their own perfection issues right there. Their egoic side of parenting is, I don't want people to judge my kid for them not looking perfect. I get it, but it's something bigger is at stake and it's allowing them that sense of autonomy. And the other thing that I think is such a great, we're still as a household managing this and what would Lynn do? The morning routine before school, right? we want it to go smoothly. We just want it done. What can we give our kids? What do we still take because we just want it done quickly? Like it's a conversation that two parents can definitely have about that. And are you always working towards independence and the ability for them to truly do it on their own as soon as they
2: can? Mm -hmm. And what I see is the patterns are laid early. And you might be surprised by this, but there are families I talk to, maybe you won't be surprised, families I talk to where the parents are calling in the morning to make sure that their college student is up for their early morning class, that they're tracking their child on campus because they know they have a chemistry lab at 815 that's across campus. And if they don't see the little blob moving across the thing, then they call. Those patterns are established really early. I don't see really independent seven-year-olds then being tracked when they're in college. Uh So you lay that groundwork early. Uh And then the kid doesn't have that expectation too, right? That you're going to make sure that they're up for (laughs) for class. Right. And what parents will say, they'll say, well, I'm going to track my college student because I'm paying you know, gazillions of dollars for them to get this education. And I'm not going to let them screw it up and waste the money. Well, I will guarantee you that that child was also very tracked or very managed throughout their whole school career because that behavior doesn't show up when your child is 18 or 19. That behavior has been there. And the reason that child doesn't know how to get themselves up is because they didn't do it in fourth grade when the stakes were lower. And that's what we really want to pay attention to. And that's what, Robin, when you were saying, prevention is the same as treatment. These are preventative skills that equip our kids with the things that they need to do to move forward into an uncertain world. And the more that we get in the way of that, the more we're going to pay the price later for sure. Yeah.
1: This has blown my mind. This episode has given me so much to think about. (laughs) And I am such a fan of your podcast. But
3: tell us, Robin, tell us about the Fluster
1: Clucks podcast and the work that you and Lynn do.
3: Well, Lynn and I started the podcast actually in March of 2020 with the pandemic because she and I had started doing these parenting retreats. I mean, one of the whole principle, which we haven't talked about yet, and I don't want to go on another topic. Connection is everything. Connection is everything because anxiety and depression are internal disorders. And the way to get out of them is always strong human connection. So, when we couldn't do the retreats, it was a no-brainer that we could start the podcast and have this message come out to as many people as possible. So, we've celebrated over 2 years and over 100 episodes. And every week, we do a combination of... We talk about specific topics, the 2 of us We'll talk about listener questions and answer those from the Facebook. And then Lynn actually started doing sessions, consultations with listeners who are recorded. And so we have a ton of people who are parents. We have a ton of people who are teachers, school nurses, other therapists. They're getting to hear Lynn actually advise a parent on how to manage a specific situation, like the most recent one on separation anxiety. So there's a lot of free tools and resources to approach these very, very common problems.
2: Do you want to talk about the courses that you offer? Yeah. And also, you know, I write, I've written a bunch of books for parents and there's one for clinicians and kids. I just finished... My book, I wrote a book called The Anxiety Audit, which was actually based on a course that Robin said, we should do this course during the pandemic. Let's help people look at the pattern. So this is a book for adults. I This is my first book, not about parenting and not about kids, but about adults and recognizing. So that'll be out in October. So I'm totally psyched about that. So that was available for pre-order now. But that was based on a course we did on Fluster clocks because parents were, you know, adults were sort of in the middle of the pandemic. Like, am I anxious? What's going on? And Robin was like, let's talk about it. Robin's the idea girl. Well, I'm just a mom who obviously
3: Lynn's been my sister-in-law and we're very close and I've learned about her work. And I've been very, talk about social anxiety of like when I was a mom of new little kids that I would have to caution my son about like standing on this rock on a lake's edge. I'm like, I hope I tell him to be careful in a way that Lynn is not (laughs) going to judge me. So I grew up as a mom with, you know, a fear of that judgment. So, but I had access to this information. I just want to say though, this stuff is so hard because I've had access to this information. Obviously, Lynn's family has, and we all have to hear it a dozen times or more. And sometimes we hear it and it still doesn't help us change. So this is like something where you have to give yourself a lot of grace and these tiny steps can make a huge difference. Yep. Small adjustments matter. Totally do. We're having our final retreat of the year because we're all about connection. We're all about families getting together, totally authentic way discussing these challenges. And we have a retreat at the end of September in Orlando. And that registration is also live now. Okay. I'll put the links to the Anxiety
1: Audit, to the Fluster Clucks podcast, to the retreat, all of these things in the show notes for this episode. So you can find them easily. Lynn and Robin, thanks for talking to me today.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having us.
5: Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings